0: Continuing today our series called "Greatest Sermon Ever," and we're looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, His Kingdom Manifesto, where He laid out what it looks like to be His follower and to live a righteous life. And as we have already seen, He's told us this is the blessed life. Following Him is the blessed way to live. We sometimes think that freedom is doing our own thing with no constraints, but that's just not true. Freedom has parameters. In fact, if you're driving down the road, you're living by the freedom to drive, but you also got some parameters. You've got some guardrails that keep you out of the ditch. You've got some stop signs that keep you from crashing into others. You've got speed limits to ignore. And uh, at least around here, that's what I've discovered people do with speed limits And you know, if it weren't for those rules and regulations and constrictions and confinements, our freedom would turn into chaos and it would do damage to us and to other people. And the same is true when it comes to spiritual freedom. Spiritual freedom is not doing whatever we want to do. Spiritual freedom is living according to the will of God for our lives. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is giving us some guidelines of what it looks like to live in freedom the spiritual freedom that he makes possible, but also living within the guidelines of a righteous life. And today, we're going to go to a section of Scripture that is honestly controversial. Because in this passage of Scripture today, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he talks about radical fidelity in marriage. And even as a pastor, when we get to these verses, Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32... Uh, there's so much room there for people to feel condemned if maybe they look at this and say, I haven't lived up to this. Well, there's no condemnation from me today or the Lord today. Sometimes people read this and there's confusion. They they say, what in the world does that mean? And I pray that today uh, God will help us to clarify some of the confusion about Jesus' call to radical fidelity in marriage and what that means and what that looks like. As a matter of fact, we have a lot of ground to cover today. So what I've done is I'm going to put a lot of scriptures on the screen. I've also put these on our our website, fcbc.life, and there's a place where it says uh, this week's worship. Uh, It shows you the sermon notes, and you can follow along that way. Did you know on that app you can even include your own notes? You can type along as I'm preaching, and then you can email those notes to yourself so you can have them later. And so we try to make that available to you. But I want you to see a lot of... This out of the context of scripture. And one thing, if you've been around our church for long, that you know about me. Is that I preach the word of God in context. I, I go to great lengths to help people see the, the context in which the scriptures are given to us. So we have to understand the context before we can then apply the scriptures to our lives. And I want you to see the context. I think you also know something about me. That I'm not going to shy away from preaching the word of God even when it's unpopular. Even when it's uncomfortable, even when maybe someone doesn't like it, there have been times I've been faithful to preach the Word of God and people have left our church. That's okay Uh, because I have an obligation to share the Word of God as it's revealed. I remind people I'm just the messenger. Uh, It is my job to be a faithful steward of what God has revealed in His Word. If you're new to church, if if you're not a follower of Jesus, you need to understand something about the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus was talking to those of us who are His disciples. He was talking to us who claim Him as our Lord and our Savior, that this is the way it looks like if we live for Him as the King of our lives and as the Savior of our souls. And so I want you to understand that context as we read today's scripture. Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Jesus is continuing in this series of, you've heard it said, but I say. There's six times he does this where he is clarifying and cleaning up some misunderstanding about the Old Testament law of God. In verse 31 of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, It was also said... Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32 is the beginning of Jesus' statements on marriage, but he will later go into even greater detail in Matthew chapter 19, and we'll look at that in just a moment. But you need to understand, in Jesus' day, the context was, there was this controversy between two schools of thought among Jewish rabbis about divorce and remarriage. And the controversy centered over a phrase In the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, chapter 24, verse 1. Some of you were reading the book of Deuteronomy just this morning in your quiet time and your devotionals. But here in Deuteronomy, chapter 24, verse 1, from the Old Testament, God was giving these commands to regulate uh, Israel's conduct among themselves. And here's, here's where the controversy was. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, If then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. Now, we're not going to keep reading Deuteronomy 24, but we're going to stop there because the controversy was over that word indecency. What does that mean? Uh, There were two schools of thought in Jesus' day about this word indecency. There was a rabbi named Hillel. He was a little more on the liberal side of things, if you would. And he said that indecency could mean anything. That your wife, if she burnt the toast this morning, you can divorce her. Your wife, if she's not a good housekeeper, she's out of here. You've got all the right to get rid of her. If your wife doesn't do the things like you think she ought to do, or she's not as attractive as another woman that you met... You can let let her go. You can divorce her. Just give her a written certificate of divorce, and you are done with her. So indecency meant pretty much anything that the guy determined it meant. Now, on the other hand, there was a more conservative school of thought led by Rabbi Shammai. And he said, no, indecency doesn't mean just anything. Indecency means some sexual immorality that has occurred in her. You then have grounds for divorce. Uh, So it has to be infidelity. It has to be unfaithfulness. It can't just be that she burnt your toast or you found someone more attractive. By the way, which of these two schools of thought do you think was more popular with the men? Uh, I think the men lean more towards Hillel's interpretation. Ah, it's anything. I, I can divorce her for any reason whatsoever. And because this was a controversy going on, Jesus begins his ministry by going ahead and just laying it out at the beginning, I know what you've heard, but here's what I'm telling you. And then later, the Pharisees decide they're going to use this theological and even political controversy about marriage to try to trap Jesus. They decide that they're going to test him to see if they can get him to say something against one of these two schools so that they could then condemn him from whichever other side he takes. For example, go to Matthew chapter 19 beginning with verse 3. This is later in Jesus' ministry where the Pharisees used this very controversy against Jesus. It says, And Pharisees, these are the spiritual religious leaders of Jesus' day, the Jewish leadership. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Hey, do you agree with Hillel that you can divorce your wife for pretty much any cause? Or do you agree with Shammai, it has to be marital infidelity? You see, the Pharisees wanted to talk about divorce. But before that, Jesus decided to talk about God's original design for marriage. You know, if you come up to me and hand me this tool and say, Pastor, this is yours. I want you to have it. Now, it's broken, but you can have it. And I ask you, well, what is it? And you say, well, I don't know what it is. I just know I don't want it. It's broken, and you can have it. Well, one of the things I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to figure out what in the world this thing is first. I'm going to see if I can find the owner's manual, or I'm going to try to find the original specs. I'm going to try to discover what is the purpose of this tool, because until I understand what the purpose is, I don't know how to fix it. And Jesus says, I know you want to talk about divorce, but let's go back to the original design of marriage. Let's talk about what God intended in the beginning. Let's go back to the owner's manual and let me talk to you about that. Because until you understand that, you don't realize the severity of what's broken. You don't realize how this could be so useful. And you don't know how to fix it if you don't know what it's for. By the way, my wife told me this is a tire inflator. That's what that is. what that is. So here's what Jesus does in response to this question from the Pharisees that's really a trick. It's a trap. Matthew 19, verses 4 and 5. He answered, Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? By the way, Jesus' words here are words of truth, male and female. That clarifies so much confusion in our culture today. If you are struggling with your identity, God loves you and he created you and he wants you to know the truth of his original design. He created male and female and Jesus affirms that. There's nothing in Jesus that is hateful and arrogant and mean-spirited. You say, well, Jesus didn't know what he's talking about. Well, then he's not God and he's not worthy of our worship. He spoke the truth. So he made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus is quoting from Genesis chapter 2. Jesus is going back to the beginning. This is God's original design in creation for marriage. This is how God created a male and female. And therefore a man will leave his father and mother be joined to his wife. Hold fast to his wife. Some of the older translations I love say cleave to his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. Jesus points out two important features of God's original design for marriage. The first feature he points out is the permanence of marriage. When he talks about holding fast to each other in marriage, a husband and a wife, cleave to each other, hold fast to one another. They are joined together. Literally in the Hebrew, it means they are glued together. It's about the permanence of marriage. I remember years ago uh, talking to a pastor when I was still single, and he said, let me show you how marriage works and how the permanence of marriage is and the damage divorce does. And he, he glued these two pieces of paper together while we were talking and he kept talking about marriage and then after the glue had dried he says now take this paper and i want you to 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 take these two and make them separate again it was impossible the more i tried to separate those two that had become one i just did damage i ripped and tore the paper he said that's what that's what divorce does it tears people apart it tears families apart it tears relationships apart And it wasn't God's original design. His original design was for permanence in marriage, a lifelong covenant commitment between a man and a woman. And the intimacy of marriage, Jesus points out, by reminding the Pharisees that the two become one. They become one flesh. That physical union of two people created for each other to complement each other, not only emotionally, spiritually, but even physically, without getting graphic on a Sunday morning, even physically, it just is a picture of union. And it's a picture of the intimacy of two people who don't lose their self-identity, but in marriage they they become a unique one. Now in math, one plus one equals two, but in marriage as God designed it, one plus one equals a new one. And it's a beautiful picture. So Jesus says in in Matthew chapter 19, verse 6, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. By the way, I use that verse at every marriage ceremony I conduct. Some of you have heard me say that because you were there as a witness. Others of you were there as the groom and the bride. And you heard me at the end say, you are now husband and wife. What God, therefore, has joined together, let no one put asunder. I didn't just make that up. I wasn't just trying to sound like a preacher. I wasn't just using King James English. I was quoting Jesus. Don't divide what God has joined together. Don't separate what God has unified. God's ideal for marriage is that it will be a monogamous, loving, lifelong commitment between a man and a woman Brought together by God. It is the foundation of human society. God knew at the very beginning, before he created government, before he even created the nation Israel, before he created even the church, the foundation of human society, the best foundation for human flourishing, the best foundation for a husband and a wife to have children and to raise those children in a stable, secure environment is a lifelong covenant commitment between two people. God even judged his own people, Israel, especially the priest, for not living up to the standard of marriage. Malachi chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, the last book of the Bible, God has told the priest of Israel he's is rejecting their worship. You come to the temple and you offer your sacrifices, I want none of it. And in Malachi chapter 2, verse 14, but you say, Why does he not? Why does God not accept our worship? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So Jesus says, you want to talk about divorce, but that was never a part of God's original plan. And the Pharisees think they have Jesus in another trap. So they ask another question about Deuteronomy chapter 24. Look at Matthew 19 verse 7. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? So their argument goes, Since Moses made provision for divorce, how can you, Jesus, say it wasn't a part of God's original plan? Here's how Jesus responds. Matthew 19, verse 8. He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, But from the beginning, it was not so. Yes, God has allowed divorce under certain circumstances as a provision to protect the innocent party. But that wasn't God's original design. It was originally, this divorce was permitted, not commanded. Moses didn't command anybody to get divorced. But he did allow for it to protect the woman who was innocent. Because in that culture, typically, it was the men initiating the divorces. It was the men who had the authority. It was the men who had the upper hand. And if a woman was divorced, she was sent out, left without security, left without financial support, sometimes even left with her own children to fend for them when there's no government programs, nobody there to come alongside of her. And so divorce was allowed for her to remarry so that she could be protected, provided for, and find companionship that God has wired into all of us. But it was the hardness of heart towards the will of God for marriage and towards the marriage partner that caused Moses to permit divorce. But it wasn't intended from the beginning. Now we come to the heart of Jesus' teaching on divorce when we read in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9. Jesus says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now the word immorality there in the Greek is the word we get our English word pornography from. It's the Greek word pornea, pornography. Greek dictionaries tell us, according to Kent Hughes, that, that this word can mean unchastity, it can mean fornication, prostitution, or other kinds of unlawful sexual intercourse. And so Jesus is saying that unless there's been sexual infidelity of some kind, sexual immorality of some kind, divorce is off the table. That is, divorce is allowed if you're made as guilty of marital unfaithfulness. But if you divorce for any other reason and remarry, it's you who's committing adultery because in God's eyes, you're still one with your spouse. And now you've gone and taken someone else as your spouse. In God's eyes, you didn't have proper grounds for your divorce. This is why we come to that Sermon on the Mount where Jesus began with those familiar words. Matthew 5, verse 32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The Lord Jesus Christ permitted divorce and remarriage under one circumstance, marital unfaithfulness. And by the way, he, he permitted it, but he doesn't command it. Unfaithfulness is not only grounds for lawful divorce, it's also grounds for forgiveness and reconciliation, if possible. And I know many couples who have worked through the trauma of unfaithfulness, and God has blessed them, and God has used them to help other people. But sometimes it's not possible. And note, Jesus says, makes her commit adultery. That's always been a confusing verse to me. It's almost like, well, the woman's innocent. And of course, we know that this can go both ways. Men can do wrong, but also women can do wrong. Jesus is addressing uh, men who were doing wrong because that was the predominant issue in his culture. But sometimes I read that, and said, what does that mean makes her commit adultery? Well, it's the husband who is the actor in this scenario, not the woman. It is the man who is the actor, the woman who is the victim. And so the Man who has unlawfully divorced his wife has created her as a victim, forcing her into the arms of another man for safety, for shelter, for protection, for companionship. Jesus assumes she will remarry. He is not forbidding her to remarry. He's just using another startling statement to remind us of the solemnity of marriage so that we understand what is at stake here. Not just legally, but spiritually and relationally. By the way, his teaching was not popular in his day. Thankfully, it's really popular in our day. But in Matthew chapter 19, verse 10, the disciples, now this isn't just the average guy on the street. This is the guy who has said, I'm I'm with you, Jesus. I'm I'm your follower. The disciples said to him, verse 10, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. So, wow! If that's the standard, Jesus, then maybe I shouldn't get married. Maybe it'd be better if people didn't get married. And Jesus is not trying to discourage marriage. What he is trying to do, though, is to say, "Don't enter marriage lightly or unadvisedly." That's another reason in the marriage ceremonies I do. I will sometimes say, um, "Laura and Noel, if you two have agreed together according to the teachings of Scripture." And know of no reason why you should not be united in marriage. If you have prayerfully and deliberately come to this place, I want you to turn and face one another. I'm trying to make sure that everyone knows they didn't just show up here because 10 minutes ago they decided to get married. They're here because they believe God has brought us together. We've prayed about it, we've sought God's will, we're taking marriage seriously, we're in this for the long haul. That's why I put that in the ceremony, because I'm trying to remember Jesus' instructions. Don't enter marriage lightly or unadvisedly. And learn to love each other as Christ commands. I tell couples, the easiest thing you're going to do is today at your wedding ceremony, say, I do. The hardest thing you're going to do is to say, I do every day for the rest of your life. And by the Spirit of God and the grace of God, you can so Jesus is saying, except for sexual immorality, no divorce. Now, does God allow divorce for any other reason? Yes. I'm going to take you quickly, and we've got to hurry because you guys aren't listening fast enough. But I want you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And um, we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 the apostle Paul giving advice to unmarried people in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 8 and 9, then to married people in verses 10 and 11. And then he gives some advice, and this is what we're going to focus on today, just really quickly. He gives advice to a Christian who is married to a non-Christian. Remember in first century, everybody's new Christians who are becoming Christians. And often one person becomes a Christian, but they're married to someone who does not yet become a Christian. And so they're a Christian married to a non-Christian. They're a believer married to a non-believer. And some of these... Christians were feeling maybe I am spiritually defiled because I'm married to a non-believer. Maybe our children, if I'm having sexual relations with this person and we have children, maybe my children are defiled. And so Paul wants to clarify that. And that's why he writes in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 and 13, To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Now, sometimes people say when Paul says, I, not the Lord, we can just dismiss this. There are people who say, I'm just a red letter Christian. I only look at the red letters in my Bible. If Jesus said it, that's all that matters. But that is not what Paul means. Paul is saying, I'm not quoting from the earthly ministry of Jesus, but I am speaking out of my apostolic authority as one called by Jesus, sent by Jesus. You see, all Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable. For doctrine, for exhortation, for reproof, for correction. We can't pit one verse of Scripture against the other. As a matter of fact, Scripture is its own best interpreter. So, what he's saying is, I'm speaking out of the authority as an apostle that if you are married to a non believer and they want to stay in the marriage, stay in the marriage. Don't get divorced. He he explains why, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. He said there's nothing wrong with this marriage. As a matter of fact, you bring holiness and sanctification and a godly influence into this relationship because you are a Christian, and you bring an influence of Christ into your child's life. There's nothing wrong With you having a marriage and enjoying that marriage and having children even though your your spouse is not a believer. Now I think Paul's referring to people who find themselves in this position, not people who choose to be in this position. The scriptures teach don't be unequally yoked. If you've got a choice, Christians need to marry Christians. Because then we're pulling in the same direction, going in the same direction in our personal relationship with Christ. And then he adds in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 15. Here it is. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. If your unbelieving spouse doesn't want to stay in the marriage, if they want a divorce, you're able to let them go, even though that's not the desire of your heart. You want to be at peace with them. You want to stay in the marriage. But if they refuse, you are free. And I believe he means you're You're free to remarry. So here's a summation of biblical teaching as I understand it. And good Christians disagree with me on some of these points or all of them, I don't know. Um, But I'm going to tell you what I believe the scriptures teach as we've just looked at it. The scriptures give two. The Bible allows for divorce for two reasons. Marital unfaithfulness through sexual immorality or the desertion of a believer by an unbelieving spouse. And to me... This includes abuse. We don't have time this morning to talk about this in in great depth. But abuse by spouse, verbal, emotional, physical, or sexual, is an abomination. It is evil. It is evidence a person is not a follower of Jesus. He had already told us in the Beatitudes, how can you treat someone with contempt and think you're a Christian? You're bound for hell if that's how you treat someone. And I believe if a person is in a relationship of abuse, they need to do a few things. They need to get out and get themselves safe. They need to call the authorities, and the church must stand with the victims, and the church must allow civil authorities to know the abuse is occurring and to handle it by the civil authorities. But I believe abuse constitutes an abandonment of all that is holy and all that is covenantal and all that is good in a relationship. And a woman, especially a woman, does not have to stay in that. But there are actually men who are in abusive relationships as well. Scripture allows remarriage in three instances. One's made as guilty of sexual immorality and is unwilling to repent and live faithfully with the marriage partner. Or a believer is married to an unbelieving spouse and they're deserted by that unbelieving spouse. Or remarriage is possible when someone has been married and divorced before they came to faith in Christ. I love 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Either that is true or it's not. And I believe it is true. And maybe you found yourself divorced before you came to faith in Christ. And maybe you realize you were the one who did the wrong. That you, you, you were the one who wasn't faithful or you're the one who left for a reason that you should have never have left your spouse. When we come to faith in Christ, the old is gone, the new has come. And I believe you need to stand in that righteousness and remarriage is absolutely biblical if you so are led by God. What if I've sinned in this area of my life? Well, first of all, how many of us have not sinned? We've already, we've already covered the, the part where Jesus said to us men, any man that looks at a woman and lusts after her, he's committed adultery in his heart. What do we do if we've sinned? That doesn't mean, well, if you've done it in your heart, just go ahead and do it. No, it just means we're all sinners. In one way or the other, none of us are perfect. There's no perfect marriage. There's no perfect person. I like what Jesus told the woman caught in the very act of adultery He says, who's here without sin? Let him be the first to cast a stone at her. One by one, from the oldest to the youngest, they drop the stones and they walk away without saying a word because they could not. They were all sinners. Jesus says, woman, where are your accusers? She said, I don't have any. He said, neither do I condemn you. But he also said, go and sin no more. You can't change your past. You can't undo what's been done. But from this day forward, live for God. That's why I love first. John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. No matter what area of our lives we've sinned in, we can't change the past, but we can repent of our sin, we can come clean with God, and we can rededicate ourselves to him, saying, God, I receive your forgiveness, your cleansing from my past, and I pray that now you will help me to live the life you're calling me to from this day on forward. That's the commitment that we ought to have. And so what I want to do today is lead us in a word of prayer as we ask God by his Holy Spirit to help us to understand the teachings of Jesus, but more than that, to practice the teachings of Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in the stillness of this moment, we confess to you that these words are sometimes hard to hear because they convict us. But God, they're also good Because they're the way to the blessed life. And we know that we've not been perfect in any of our lives. So we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your patience and your love. And that in Christ there is no condemnation. In Christ our sins are forgiven. We're cleansed and made righteous. But God, we also pray that by your Holy Spirit you would remind us of what it looks like to live as a follower of Jesus. And that by your Holy Spirit, you would give us the strength to live this way. Because we cannot do this on our own. We are poor in spirit. We are needy. We need your grace, your power. And I thank you that the resurrection power of Jesus lives in each one who has committed themselves to him as Lord and Savior. Let us yield our lives to him. Let us yield our will and our opinions and our politics and our feelings and our emotions and our past and our desires. Let us yield everything we are to the Lord Jesus Christ and let him have his will and way in our lives. And God, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness for when we don't get it right. Thank you. There's no condemnation. Father, there could be someone in this room today who realizes they need Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. They're trying to live a good life on their own and they're... and and. There's so much about them that is good, but they're missing the blessed life by having Jesus in them, forgiving them of their sin, being their Lord and their Savior. So right now in the stillness of this moment, if there's someone that needs Jesus, let them turn from their sin, confess it to him, receive his forgiveness, and let him be the Lord of their lives. And God will praise you for what you do in us. We close today reminding ourselves of what Jesus said. If you abide in my word then you really are my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.